Welcome back to Following Know It On, a Stormlight podcast. This week is episode 65, and we are going through chapters 34 through 37 of Oathbringer by Brandon Sanderson. Now, I have actually been looking forward to this episode since, uh, what, maybe episode 6 of, of, of this podcast where we had a, a very interesting little little bit where we've had made a reoccurring so i'll 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 talk about that more in here in a second but how are you elliot we'll start with that i'm doing good i'm doing good we we talked last time about wanting more action going forward i don't know that we necessarily got that but still some fun parts in this chapter and i am really excited to see paul uh make a fool of himself paul how are you stressed (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a little bit a little a little bit stressed um last week i did say i will probably never miss a spell check i'm going to stick with it but <laughs> <laughs> we'll see <laughs> all right so yes the elephant in the room is uh we've been introduced to rock's wife on on this episode rock has been finally reunited with his family and uh when we get to our spell check, Paul's going to have to try to spell Rock's wife's name. But before we get there, can we get two words to summarize this episode? Uh, we'll start with you, Elliot. So I chose for my two words for these chapters to be social expectations. Social expectations. Yeah, I like that. And Paul, your two words. So my first my first word um, is misunderstandings. My second word is apostrophes. <laughs> <laughs> in in lieu of our spell check today. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's use these four words and talk about Oathbringer. All right, so let's talk about Elliot's first, and then we can use Paul's two words to push us into our spell check, which we'll get to shortly, but we'll talk about Elliot's first. Go ahead. Over two in a row episodes-wise here, I'm, I'm pairing my two words together into a, a phrase, if you will, this time with social expectations. I feel like there's multiple instances across these chapters where a character is being kind of either put into a box or fulfilling a very certain role or feeling like they're supposed to be fulfilling a certain role when maybe that isn't necessarily the case. And the first example of that is Dalinar. So he, we're going to talk about how he visits the queen of Thalinar. Thalinar? Thalin city. Thalina. Yeah. Uh, and she you know, has some very, some misconceptions about him and what he's trying to do. And they have a little bit of a connection there. Then later on, we have a, some interesting discussion with Sigil and Kaladin about a, a few different kind of social expectations. Well, we might talk about that in, when we get to that chapter. And then Renarin, we get to learn a little more about Renarin and how he sees kind of the struggles that he is dealing with, with living up to his older brother Adolin and kind of the expectations that his father has for him or the expectations that Renarin thinks his father has for him. And then lastly, even 
Rock himself. I think we're going to spend a, a fair amount of time talking about Rock when we get to chapter 37, but he feels like he has to be a cook when we get a lot of kind of hints of maybe he there's so much more to him. Is he being unfairly forced into this role, or is that really what he wants to be? Lots of sort of kind of where do I fit into society questions I felt like across these chapters. Yeah, good. Uh, Paul? Uh, so my first word is misunderstandings, and it mostly had to do with, like, the Sigzil chapter and, and just kind of, I don't know, there's a lot of... Just a lot of conversation that happened that it... I don't know. I feel like maybe we had some misunderstandings of the characters or like, I don't know, there's just kind of a lot going on. So I kind of just did that as an encompassing thing throughout that. And that was my primary motivation. Um, and my second word apostrophes is simply just a joke for our spell check today. <laughs> Good luck with that. that. All right. We'll get the first, we'll, we'll jump right into the spell check just to, take the bull by the horns for for you paul not keep you waiting any longer because i know you really want to do this i'm so excited I'm just... all right first one we'll, we'll throw you a we'll throw you a softball uh <laughs> there's a new herdasian or herdasian in bridge four and elliot do you have that name in front of you um would you like to try to say that name sure this guy this is the guy that like throws some spices in in Rock's food and Rock gets mad about it, but then it's like, oh wow, that's actually awesome. Yep. His name is clearly got to be Uio. I think. Maybe. Paul. Yes, I believe that's right. It's Huio. Huio, roughly. Um, and so for Herdesian here, um. I was I was nervous about one thing, which which I'll talk about. But for spelling, I went with H U I J O. I went with a J so for like the yeah, like the Y sound. But I don't know if it was literally a Y. You, you are you are close, but there's no J. It's just Huio H U I O. He is he's not. Oh well, okay, yeah, that's odd. He's he's not. Alethi and the Alethi use the or I actually should say um Vorin? Vor yes, thank you. Vorin. He's not Vorin, so they don't use that J um as the Y sound like Yakovet and Yasna and that type of thing. So uh it's just okay. there's no J, but other than that you were correct. Alright, and now the moment everybody has been waiting for. everybody's kinda of point looking at Paul, but Elliot gets a gets an interesting bit here too. So <laughs> Rock finally gets reunited with his family and Rock drops the name of his wife and the name of his wife is Elliot. All right. It's I'm not sure I'm going to butcher this. It's going to be, <laughs> I hope <laughs> I'm not. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the name of Rock's wife, I'm probably going to butcher this, but her name is Song. <laughs> Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> not wrong. That was funny. Smart, yes. smart, smart answer. Okay, fine. I know I, you're looking for the uh, the horn eater, whatever their crazy language name is. So I am. I'll give a shout at that. I'll give a shout at that. So here we go. Her name is Tuwaka Lina Kalminor. 
That perfect. Is, that is correct. That's how. That's how. Wow! Sweet. Yeah. Michael Kramer says it. Tuakalina Kalmanoi. I. The sounds are all fairly straightforward when you're reading it. It was kind of just a question of where's the emphasis and like combination of sounds, but I don't think it was nearly as hard as Rock's name when mm-hmm. we first came across that one. But good luck spelling it. Yeah, that one. That was, that was a doozy, all right. Um, all right, okay. your turn. So spelling for this, um, should I try it with apostrophes? I'll get. I'll do it with apostrophes. We'll go the whole shipping. So the name tu- Tuaka Lena Kalmanor. I had T U apostrophe A K A apostrophe L I N A apostrophe K-A-L-M apostrophe I-N-O-R. Wow. Wow. Okay, so. Wow. You are extremely close. You're you're not 100%, but you're very, very close. Your apostrophes are off, which is, like, it's it's understandable. (laughs) And you have a K instead of a a C. Okay. I debated on that for a while. And other than that, you were perfect. You had a question. Yeah, go. Well, okay, okay. One, I, I, I chose a K because I was like, okay, the horn eaters, I feel like they're more like brash with their like they have a lot of like K sounds and stuff, and so mm-hmm. I, I chose K. Also I wanted to ask, is is the last apostrophe supposed to be before the M and after the L? I, is that where I slipped up? Because I debated on that for a while. No. Okay, okay. That's fine. I thought it may have been like a call minor, or I couldn't didn't know if it was that or like calm enor. So, I'll I'll say it with the apostrophes in it with the heavier okay. the heavier weight. So it's tuaka, okay. Lee, na, <laughs> call me nor. Okay, yeah. Okay, so the apostrophes are off. Correct. Yeah, and, right. and there's really no way you could get gather that based on how they say yeah. it in the audiobook because they say Lena and there's a yeah. there's an apostrophe in there. So Yeah, that is actually really tough. Yeah, I would have never split up the Lena part there. Yeah. Never. Goodness. Okay. Nice job. Nice job. I'm proud well of that. I'm proud of that. Yeah. I'm proud of, well it. I'm proud of you too. <laughs> it's a solid like 90, 98% accuracy. So nice job. Mm-hmm. That's good. All right. Now that we have our that that segment out of the way, the real content of the the podcast is is coming your way. Chapter thirty four. I really like this chapter, and it's it's not necessarily because of the content specifically. It's because as a first time reader, I this was one of my favorite visions that we've we'd ever seen Dalinar in. And based on the ending of part one, this was the one that I wanted to revisit with somebody. And we get it immediately. So Dalinar chooses this vision, the one that's like maybe the most action-packed, um, to to bring Queen Fen in to, uh, to try to talk to her. And there's some cool things that happen later in this chapter. But did, did you guys have a similar feeling that you really wanted to revisit this uh, this vision that we've seen? We, we've referenced this many times. Um, throughout the podcast. So what were you guys' thoughts revisiting this this uh, this vision? 
was definitely high on my list as well of ones I wanted to see again, just for a couple of reasons. One, it was a really exciting one. So to get to see it again, maybe from a different perspective would be fun. But then also to take what we've learned since then and kind of come back and apply that new lens to, okay, what are these night radiants doing? What are We know what they're capable of now. We know kind of what their purpose is. So that helps us a lot. But I agree with kind of what you maybe hinted at, Trevor, that this is absolutely not the vision that I would have picked to go have a conversation with someone in. Like, go pick the the quiet one where he's just like chatting with Noadon to, you know, have a chance to sit down and have a conversation with Fen. Not the, you know, oh, here, yeah, middle of a battle, you know, good luck having a, oh, by the way, can you come to your theory and talk with me or, or whatever he wants? It was, yeah, not a wise choice. Yeah, I, I had to say I was I was excited to see this, especially because we've theorized a bit about this vision of like, okay, were these midnight assets something to do with Ray Shapir, our unmade that we've seen, or, or things like that, which I don't think I got any kind of real answer with that, which wasn't a you, big that was You did actually. Dalinar had a had a comment as he's flying towards the like he gets he gets subbed into the whatever the second knight's radiant is that's with the Windrunner. And as he's as he's in the vision, he's like, "Wait a minute! Why did I drop her in the middle of fighting these midnight essence?" <laughs> like he like has that realization, and then he has this offhand comment of Shalon just met the the origin of these these things. So you, you did get a confirmation from Dalinar that they're they're tied. Okay, okay. Well, that's pretty cool to see that now. And but yeah, it was definitely interesting, and it was. It was cool to see, and just being honest, this is something that I would love to see in the, like, if there was ever a screen ad- adaptation of of this whole storyline of the Stormlight Archive. Uh, just because we're seeing the same scene again, but played out entirely differently. And I think that's just a cool thing, like, just, I don't know, really neat to see. Um, and stuff, so, yeah, it was very interesting. But, yeah, whenever he actually starts talking to the Thalen queen like it's it's just awkward she's like what why did we do this like <laughs> like why didn't you write me a letter like <laughs> you had to do this before we before we actually get to the vision itself though there was actually one other thing i wanted to bring up and talk with you guys about and that's a kind of a nuance with the stormfather like as Dalinar is going into the vision, he like enters into like a waiting room for a little bit he before does. he goes into the, the actual thing. And he's asking the Stormfather, like, what the heck is this? It's like all white, or I don't even remember how it's quite, you know, described. And then he has an interesting conversation about it with the Stormfather. The Stormfather's like, Oh, well, I just imagine this place to be I forget exactly what, a waiting place for Spren or, or something like that. But then he goes on even further. And talks about how when an object dies, I think he uses an example of like a vase. When a vase in the physical realm is smashed, it dies in quotes. But its corresponding spren, you know, this whole kind of concept of inanimate objects have a, a soul, if you will, in the shape of their spren. So the, the vase spren. He, he talks about the vase spren continues existing until it is forgotten, until the people, I suppose, forget that those 
shards on the ground, I guess, were meant to be a vase, that's when the spren dies. And just kind of that whole idea of imagination and the thoughts forming the existence of the spren was all really interesting. Completely irrelevant to the rest of this chapter, but kind of interesting. I want to... I want to stop here and pull this thread a little more because it has really nothing to do with Roshar or the Storm of the Archive or anything. But have you guys seen Coco, the the Disney the Disney movie Coco? I have not. The with the guitar playing. Oh, yeah. you gotta go see it, with, man. It's a good one. It's the yeah. The I the whole amazing. the whole concept of of Coco is the uh, Dia de los Muertos, the the Day of the Dead. Um, that's celebrated in Mexico specifically. And they keep their ancestors alive by remembering them and celebrating the Day of the Dead. And if you if you don't do that to your for your an- so in the in the realm of the dead, your ancestors live on and uh, like you know have a, their own community as long as people remember them. But if you start forgetting them, then they finally pass on and die a second time. And it's kind of the similar thought here of as long as we keep remembering our ancestors here, they'll they'll live on in the in the spiritual realm over there. Um, but as if you start forgetting them and forget if you don't have anybody to remember you after after death, then you'll you'll die that second time and uh, not be remembered by anyone. So same kind of concept here. I had not made that parallel, but that's brilliant, actually, The <clears throat> that that similarity there. That makes a lot of sense. The only weird part about this one in, in this world is we're talking about inanimate objects now. We're right. talking about, like, I go out and I, I build something with my hammer, but, that, but I break my hammer as I'm doing it. Well, now my hammer's broken, so I throw it away. I'm going to forget about that hammer pretty quick. Like, by the end of the day, I've probably forgotten about my hammer. And so, to us, that doesn't mean anything. I broke my hammer, forget about it, I'll go get a new one, you know, in a in the next day. But does that have much more important implications in the spren world? Is the spren of that hammer more important than I realize? Like is that important or is it not? Like this is now bringing up some weird questions for me of this trying to understand what's going on in the spren world and is it important? Yeah. But anyway, that was a bit of a sidebar. We can we can probably go back to talking about uh, Dalinar and what's the name of the Thalen Queen Lady Fen? Yeah, Queen Fen. Okay. Uh, just real quick, any guesses as to what type of Knight's Radiant Dalinar is in this vision? We know his his buddy who's lashed him is a wind runner and he guesses on as to what he is. I know that part of the complaints that the wind runner had is like, why aren't you healing people? Right. So I'm assuming he's one of the, there are two that can heal, right? Correct. Isn't it? The, the truth watcher and to the truth watcher and the light weaver. It is not the no, light, light weavers. weavers. Don't do that. No, we know what they do. That was silly. Um, as far as I know, it's the Truth Watcher and another. Um, and I think it's. I think he's a Truth Watcher because I think that would be cool and more significant because Renorin is. 
a truth watcher as well. True. So you actually know the second one as well. Do you? We. I. I know you told us all of them at one point. Well, you've read the um, second one. Lift yes, it, heals it, her her buddy oh, who's right. the edge dancer. Okay. Yes, yeah, so he's either an edge dancer or a truth watcher. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Elliot, are you still here? I am still here. I came to the same conclusion. Interestingly, <laughs> my my answer to your question changes based on the rest of the reading for this episode. Like we find out later in chapter 37, I think, although Renarin talks about his, um, his surges in that chapter. He talks about um, how as a truth watcher, he has illumination and progression, progression, which I think we already kind of knew, right? We knew that we knew that he could heal as a truth watcher. So I suppose right. I should have known that at this point, but yeah, truth watcher or, Edge Dancer, correct. I don't know which one. Maybe Truth Watcher. That would be interesting, like you said, Paul. I think that would be cool because it could end up being some kind of similarity or, or things like that where he can see it into Renorin's perspective a little more, which would be something neat, but um, it could very well not be as well. So the way the vision itself plays out is actually really interesting. Trevor, I think you noted this in our in our outline. It kind of happens differently, but kind of gets to the same point eventually. It right. kind of goes down different paths, but then it ultimately gets to the moment where the Night Radiant is saying, wow, you have good leadership skills. You should come to your theory and join the Night's Radiant or whatever that part is but we want but, you for yeah yeah <laughs> right but but yeah interesting that and that it happens differently and that fen kind of approaches it differently than than dalinar did but yeah i i was kind of honestly torn a bit in this chapter between do i pay attention to how the vision is happening or do i pay attention to the conversation that dalinar and fen are trying to have i was i was a little like my attention was torn a little, split a little bit if you think your attention is split, imagine Queen Fen and her oh, man. This this is why this was a terrible idea of Dalars to pick this vision. Like, let's put her in the most stressful one where she has to deal with this crazy, scary situation. Oh, and then also I'd like to have a heart to heart conversation with you about how I'm not the man you think I am and you really should join me. Like Okay, Dalinar. It was very odd, but it worked. It did. It did actually work by ish by the end. Yes, ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as as Dalinar is flying there, he has this moment of like, wait, what if I just like make her really angry that she's now torn in half and I'm trying to, you know, have this conversation with her, but she, she figures it out and sacrifices poor what's her face? I don't remember her name. But um the the dialogue that the other night's rating has at the end of the uh at the end of the vision is very interesting because it's different but also similar to what Dalinar hears because when Dalinar gets the vision at the end of the vision, he turns to him and like, Hey, you're a great fighter. You should come to your Ethereum. And then at this one, he turns to Queen Fen. It's like, Hey, you're a great leader. You organized all these people come to your Ethereum. So based on 
like what you know dalinar just wants to like oh you're putting me in a fight i'm gonna fight there's no other option and then queen fen you know runs and gets the rest of the town together and creates a little resistance against the whatever so there's there's the same concept but different uh, specific differences between the two of them i think my only other takeaway out of this chapter really was kind of the thoughts Dalinar's having about hey we should study these visions we should like get navani and yasna in here and get them to you know go over kind of inch by inch what's in here and the Stormfather keeps responding to this with, and they've kind of had this conversation before with like, oh no, these visions are just, you know, here to do one purpose and don't read into it too deeply. You know, I can't really show you more. But then it seems like this is a perfect example of it plays out slightly differently and they kind of learn a little bit more because it went a little bit differently. So I think Downer has a point. I think they should use this as an opportunity to learn as much as they can about the Knights Radiant and Noadon and honor and anything that they can get their their hands on that might be useful in this upcoming war with the Voidbringers, this desolation that they're facing. And the Stormfather just kind of blows it away as, you know, nah, psh, nah, not important. Funny. That was funny. Blows it away. Yes. Like that. <laughs> Do you think we're going to see... I don't know. Did we find out if Dalinar is going to continue using this to like reach all the different people or like, is he going to learn from this and be like, Oh, that kind of worked. Maybe I'll do the same vision again. Or is he going to like do one where he can just like more chill talk to them or what? Cause I mean, this happened with this with Fen here, but like, this has been kind of his plan for a week or so, or a couple of days or so of like, okay, I can do this with vision with visions to like reach people. It seemed to me like he's planning to keep doing this with other people, but yeah, I don't know whether he's going to learn from this and do something different or if we're just going to see different versions of the same vision over and over, which might be interesting if that actually would happen. But yeah, it seems like he'd be maybe a little more productive to use a different one. Mm-hmm. The one, Elliot, you mentioned this earlier, but the one where he just is having a conversation with Noadon would would be, I feel like, a good one because they're they're looking at the end of a desolation. They finally won the war. Noadon has, and he's having an existential crisis of, well, I mean, we won the war, but now what? You know, but he could use that vision and be like. Yo, look what's gonna happen to Roshar. Please join me. I, I, I need I need your help. So he could definitely use that vision to help. Yeah, exactly. Any more thoughts on thirty four before pushing to some desperately needed bridge four content for me? Let's do it. Alright, so we haven't really seen Bridge 4 since the end of The Way of Kings. The Way of Kings is, you know, Bridge 4's book. It's Kaladin's book. It's very zoomed in. It's, I'm going to tell you a story about Kaladin and Bridge 4, and you're not really going to worry about the rest of Roshar. And now we've zoomed all the way out, and you've got the whole whole of Roshar, the whole existential crisis of the human race on your mind here against the Voidbringers. Um, and 
we finally get more more Sigzel content, more rock content later. Because they, they've been in this story, but not really. Like, they definitely took a backseat for, for Words of Radiance because it was Shallan's book, and we were learning more about the Knights Radiant, and they weren't there yet. So, But now they kind of are getting there. And Kaladin is starting the Windrunners. He's, he is kind of planting his flag as the the leader of the Windrunners and Bridge 4, anyone who wants to can jo- can be trained as a Windrunner. And Sigzil in this chapter brings up very interest like a lot of very interesting dynamics and points of okay, are we an Alethi military force? Do we answer to Dalinar? Do we answer to Elokar? Like what if you know like he's got all sorts of these questions what what did you guys think of this chapter just real briefly and then i want to hear what <clears throat> paul thought i like the sigzo guy he's a lot like me he'll read something or experience something and then just write down a whole bunch of questions like i i get this guy i totally get it he's going through like well, what about this what about this oh but what well, hold on a second what about this like i'm with you sigzo that's that's me too I I was really excited to have like a Sigzel chapter because he was definitely like, if not my favorite Bridgman, then like my second favorite. Like he's he's one of the coolest. I think one of the ones I was most curious about. Like right out of the gate, um, I I do want to say real quick. I don't want to interrupt you too badly, Paul. But the I was a little actually surprised by Signal Sigzel's perspective here. The the image I've kind of gotten in my mind of him up until this point is the like quiet, confident one in the group where he doesn't say a whole lot, but when he does say something, you better listen because it's going to be important, you know, sort of thing. Now that we're inside Sigso's head, there's a lot more like hesitancy and uncertainty from his perspective. Like Sigso, now that we're with him, kind of seeing it through his eyes, is much more like. I'm not really sure about this. Maybe we should try this. Or what about this? And are we doing the right thing here? You know, that's not the Sigzel that I kind of had seen up until this point. So interesting and actually extremely well written, I think, to do that, to to show that that makes perfect sense, right? That someone can kind of show a confident, quiet, and calm exterior when on the inside, they're still questioning everything. They're still... You know, is this really what we're going to do? And then when they say something, oh, yeah, well, I'm a world singer. I know everything, and we're going to do this. And then on the inside, he actually is doubting what's going on. So I think pretty brilliantly written here. I I agree with you on that a lot, Elliot. Because, um, yeah, I always had the perception that he was very confident, and, and he was just, like, the knowledgeable one. Yeah. He knew a whole lot about everything. He was very smart. Um, and now we're seeing him like have more doubt or less confidence in himself. Um, and yeah, I didn't fully know what to make of this chapter. Um, there's, I feel like it was just some development between him and Kaladin, um, stuff like that. But nothing super major. I, like I would say our biggest, in my mind, the biggest like development chapter was our rock chapter. Uh, but the Sigzel chapter was also really neat. I just I just didn't have as much of a takeaway from it, honestly. We do get an introduction of a new character 
in this in this chapter. She's kind of a uh, she gets maybe a page of content. She walks up to to Kaladin, and she's obviously interested in Bridge Four and wants to you know hang out with them. And Kaladin kind of turns to her and because on Kaladin's mind, he's like, "Oh, we need a scribe." is what he's is what he's thinking like we need somebody to do our do our ledgers and write a history of bridge four that type of thing and he's got this scout girl next to him and so normal like gender norms for the alethi are women can write and men can't so he turns to the first woman he sees this woman scout next to him it's like hey do you want to join bridge four and she takes that as hey do you want to be trained as a wind runner and that's not what he means he means hey do you want to write all our stuff for us because you're a woman and uh Sigzel has a line in his like we're in his point of view he has a he's a thought he's like he wants to just punch Kaladin in the face because what she's what he just said like not really knowing like not really thinking about it but Lynn obviously wants to fully be in bridge four she wants to be trained in the spear like everybody else was she wants to be trained as a windrunner and Kaladin has that opportunity because as Lynn points out, Shalon is a full night's radiant. She has a shard blade. She's doing everything that Kaladin's doing. So why can't Lynn? Um, and so she kind of stands up for herself and says, "There were old. There were knights radiant. There were women in the past. I want to be a part of that." And then Kaladin's like, "Oh, okay. Yeah, we can we can go down that route. I didn't really think about that, but sure." <laughs> And so he invites her to do the tryout, which we see later in chapter 37, which is part of that. So, Yeah, and all of that came kind of right after a discussion where Kaladin was kind of challenging Sigzil a little bit of, you know, be, be careful about imposing your moral beliefs on other people. And, you know, Sigzil was kind of saying, I feel like our group needs a, a moral someone who's morally responsible for the group. I, I kind of, it seems like he's, you know, applying for to be chaplain of the group where he, he wants to be, you know, someone who's thinking about the, you know, are we doing the right thing? He, he even mentions that there's, I think four different religions represented within the, the bridge Four, which uh, that was an interesting comment there. And Calvin kind of, you know, challenges him there and says, Hey, help people be who, they're meant to be not necessarily who you think they should be, which right. I, I thought actually was a really good little quote there. But then it, it, what follows is what you just described this scenario where Kaladin then goes and, you know, makes some assumptions about Lynn and this woman who wants to become, you know, part of a uh, bridge Four. So, so interesting back and forth here between Kaladin and Sigzel, I thought. And each of them have their, their strengths here where Sigzel is yeah. putting himself in Lynn's shoes and then Kaladin's putting himself in Huyo's shoes because, like, yep. Sixel thinks that Huyo is, you know, disrupting the chemistry of Bridge Four, and Kaladin's like, it's it's really okay. That's what Bridge Four is about: is inclusion and making sure that you're welcome here. Because, I mean, I would say, I I don't know, I don't, I haven't done them, I haven't really thought about it, but I would say probably 40 percent of the members of Bridge Four are Alethi. And then the rest of them are kind of sprinkled in other, um, in other races. So there's certainly a lot of diversity in Bridge Four, and Kellen's like, "No, that's a strength of ours, and we need to be okay with that." 
yeah, I thought it was a very interesting kind of where do we go from here chapter of, okay, we've we've gotten to the point where we can now worry about these kinds of questions. We've survived bridge four. We're alive. We're now, okay, bodyguards. Okay, now we're windrunners. Well, now what? Like, who are we as windrunners? That's kind of some of the stuff that's getting dived into. Dove into? One of those two. Dovin. Dovid? Yep. Yeah. Dovin did? Paul, you're a windrunner. What What does it mean to be a windrunner? Go. It means that you can fly whether or not people want you to and sometimes sometimes that ruffles some feathers no pun intended but like hot hot um that I, I don't have anything for you i wish i had more i'm a i'm a i'm failing as a windrunner right now it's okay you're like, a you're a fledgling windrunner it's okay i i am a fledgling is it? Any more for 35 before we talk about Evie and some flashback Dalinar? I'm ready to move on. All right. Uh, Evie's pregnant. And we're assuming with Adolin, we are, that's not confirmed for us, but we're assuming, you know, Adolin might have a long lost older sister or something like that. We don't know. Um, and Evie has some interesting dialogue in this in this chapter, and we get some new information towards the end of it. But w- what were you guys' uh, impressions of this uh, flashback chapter? I felt like two two big revelations in this one. One bigger than the other. The first one's smaller. Evie mentions the Night Watcher, which we're on the hunt for kind of unraveling what happened with Dalinar and the Night Watcher. So this felt like really valuable information, but it doesn't really support necessarily the kind of storyline we've been going with. It actually presents a potential other possibility, I feel like. Evie mentions that if Dalinar wants to speak with the One, which is like part of her western roshar religion of how they you know god basically if he wants to speak with god oh he should just go talk to the night watcher and dalinar just kind of shrugs it off of oh that's superstitious craziness i would never go talk to the night watcher that's silly but we know that he does go talk to the night watcher at some point and we've kind of been assuming it to this point that he does so to remove some sort of pain or burden that he's carrying. What if he just goes because Evie asked him to? What if he just goes because he wants to support her and her religion later on? Or maybe she, well, we know she dies. So what? maybe when she does die, he thinks, oh, I want to honor her last wish or something and go talk to the Night Watcher. Like, I feel like there's more possibilities now of reasons why he might want to want to do that. And the second revelation? Second one. Big one here. So a couple chapters ago, I don't remember how long ago this was, we saw Dalinar acquire his Shardblade Oathbringer. 
And we talked quite a bit about that event because it involved Dalinar the Blackthorn assumedly murdering a young boy in order to get that blade. Correct. And I know I at least knocked on him pretty hard for that. And we we kind of pointed to that as a, oh, look how terrible Dalinar the Blackthorn is. Well, now we figure out he didn't kill that boy. It comes out in this chapter that not only did he not kill that boy, that boy is back and his people want their shard blade back. And that, that's kind of the, the plot point in this of Gavilar's like, hey man, I thought you took care of this. But the big revelation is, well, hang on a second. That kind of, that changes a lot. And instead of this being a moment of, wow, look how terrible Dalinar was. Now it's like, oh, wait a second. Is this a turning point for Dalinar? Is this the terrible Dalinar finally coming to something that he's not willing to do and actually thought about and realized, oh, I can't kill this young boy because that's wrong and he doesn't. So a lot of things just changed for me reading this chapter, actually. And in light of this, if you remember back to the other chapter, setting up that scene, he's, you know, way steep in the thrill. He's he's running after this other shard bearer that he's been denied this kill and he runs into this secret, you know, hideout that he's in and he um, presumably kills the guy. Um, that he's chasing but and then like it you know it, like the screen goes black we jump to him after the battle and he's sitting there like visibly shaking because he's like so what we've been what we've been assuming up to this point he's just killed this child and right. he's the aftermath of that but did he have some sort of backlash control of the thrill in that moment because he was able to control himself and have mercy for that child. So he, there's a very interesting light of that last scene there of him at the end of the battle with Oathbringer, like on his lap or whatever. And he's very visibly shaken, but he has spared this child that we've now find out. So, Paul, oh, was this as earth shattering or, or big a moment for you or, or not so much? Like what were you thinking when, when this revelation came? It was pretty big, but it wasn't enormous, I guess. Um, it honestly took me a little while to realize with with the kid, it was kind of like my second read-through. I, I kind of put those pieces together. Um, but it is it is a big deal. And so uh, throughout this book, I've imagined that we will see the progression from the Blackthorn to more of the Dalinar as we know him now, um, to be more honorable and concerned with doing what's right maybe um and i from what i can guess is this is kind of that glimpse of that uh, uh, maybe a little twinkle in the distance of of our, of our good dalinar um so yeah that was a pretty neat thing to see um yeah and um my other if if you have more to add, we can. I have another point about this chapter I would like to get to. I'll throw it back to you here in a second, but I don't I don't want to gloss over the effect this has on Evie. Evie is like thrilled. <laughs> Funny, she is <laughs> she's <laughs> elated, I should say, to the very happy for the for the news that 
Dalinar does have some mercy, like even on the battlefield. She knows he's like at this juggernaut on the battlefield and gonna kill everything in his way. And she learns that she that he did spare this young child, and even if it's gonna cause tr- problems for Gavilar later, it, it doesn't. It she doesn't care. She's just so happy that he's human. <laughs> I guess that he has this softer side to him and you know he can actually be a compassionate father figure if you will for this child coming I'm glad you said that because that kind of plays into what I was going to talk about Um, for what like half of me thinks wow if we're considering the simple fact he'd didn't kill a child to be like oh he has a compassionate side i feel like that's a bit generous like right um but it it is better than the alternative of having killed the child right um so so that is good news and honestly it makes me happy for evie um and what i was gonna say is some of these flashback chapters make me a little bit sad because I I see Dalinar and Evie's relationship, and you, you, we see it from Dalinar's perspective of, like, almost like it's a chore or kind of a bother to, like, go about this relationship. Right. Um, and that kind of annoys me a little bit. Uh, he's like, okay, he'll, like, put his arm around her or something, like, f- for show, like, a- as he's kind of, like, expected to. And just stuff like that is kind of, like, it kind of sad to see, and, and I was like, "Wow, I hope Evie is like happy." I don't know, um, and, and it was kind of nice to see like a little bit of a like redeeming quality and, and something there that Evie could be happy about. Um, so I really, I really liked that, and that was something that I wanted to bring up. That, that's a good point, actually. So many of our characters lately, I feel like we've been looking for hidden motives and, you know, double agendas and trying to figure out what they're doing. And and here we just kind of have poor Evie kind of thrust into the middle of this. Maybe she does have a hidden agenda and is going to, you know, turn out to be way more than we think, but, but also maybe she is just, you know, kind of stuck in the middle of this and, and is, you know, stuck married in, in, in this political marriage where Dalinar just kind of sees her as a chore and a political check the box. So yeah, that, that's a good point. Any more thoughts on our flashback? All right. Rock has been reunited with his family by the end of this chapter, but we'll get there. Elliot, you you have in our outline minor note on epigraph. Would you like to share? Start. Yeah, real brief. We don't have a lot of actual information to answer this question, but the epigraph, trying to flip to it real fast, in uh, the beginning of this chapter, mentions a couple names that rang a bell for me. And so I had to do a little bit of digging. The epigraphs, we haven't really talked about epigraphs too much, but the epigraphs for this part two seem to be, again, just kind of a conversation between, we don't know who, they're not labeled with like who's speaking or where they're coming from. So we have no idea. And so because of that, I've kind of been writing them off as, well, well, that means nothing to me now. I'll pause you real quick. The first part one's epigraphs are labeled of being excerpts from Oathbringer. Um, part two are not. So yes, 
Okay. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for that clarification. You're absolutely right. Oathbringer in part two, sorry, part one, part two, unlabeled, not quite making sense. Because of that, I've, I've kind of now gone into the mode of, I don't really read them too much, or I don't reread them too much because you kind of pass like, well, that makes no sense. It'll maybe make sense to me someday. But this one, chapter 37, mentions three names, Rays, Aona, and Sky. I don't know if I'm pronouncing those right at all, but I read those and I was like, wait a second. We've heard those names before. And I had to go digging to find them. But what I did find was they show up in very similar sounding epigraphs in The Way of Kings. If you go back to the part one of Way of Kings. I'm so proud of you, Elliot. Keep going. I'm, I'm so impressed. proud. I am very impressed. The, the epigraphs from that part one mention these names and almost seem like a similar conversation. I was flipping through just a couple of them and reading some of them to the point where now I'm thinking that those epigraphs and these epigraphs are coming from the same person or the same source, or at least the same group of people that involves apparently race, Rays, Aona, and Sky. Um, still not enough to really tell us who the heck these people are or why they're important. I remember now thinking back to Way of Kings, I think I did the same thing I'm doing now of, well, that makes no sense. I'm going to keep reading this chapter and maybe it'll make sense someday. I'm still three books in at the same place, but I at least have two parts that I can tie together. So maybe when I do get the final key that unlocks this, I know where to look to go back and reread and be like, oh, that makes sense now. I'm very impressed. I just think it's so funny. Those are, those that... are some big dots to connect. Yeah, you're you have this you have this little straw that doesn't connect to anything and you've yes. been carrying it for two thousand yes. some yep. pages and you're like oh, this was the same color they go together i don't know why but they go together yeah you exactly absolutely correct it's actually so funny it's like wait guys i found it i found it like i found the <laughs> what missing did you, piece what did you find what did like, you find i don't know but i like, found it, it <laughs> it's like a puzzle and we found two pieces of it and we found them that they go together but we have no idea what the puzzle is. Like, we have no clue. But these two pieces do go together. Like, they that, fit together. So That is a perfect analogy, Paul. I feel like I'm trying to solve 25 different puzzles at the same time. And I just realized that two of my pieces come from the same puzzle. And that's a yeah. big moment. It's a big moment, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. That, that's, that's really <laughs> funny, actually. Nothing to do with the chapters. But I, I, I got excited Good. about that epigraph. <laughs> all right so at the end of chapter 35 Sig it kind of clicks for Sigzel what Kaladin's about to do for his Windrunners he borrows the emerald treasure trove from we assume Dalinar Elkar somebody and it's it's the it's the bounty from the chasm fiends that they've been harvesting for you know five six years on the shattered plains and they've been infused with stormlight, freshly infused with stormlight. And he takes them out to the Shattered Plains. He takes the Oathgate to the Shattered Plains and has this little training session with the Windrunners. He has his first prep speech of like, you know, when I trained you guys to be Bridge 4, I knew the spear. I'm now training you to be Windrunners. I have no idea what I'm doing. So let's just kind of go with this uh, step at a time and we'll figure this out. And... 
Uh, so this is the scene that we've been jumped into right here, but it's from Rock's perspective. And Rock is kind of reserved, set aside from the rest of um, the rest of this scene as he has been throughout the, the story. Rock's kind of set himself apart from everybody else and he's the cook and he's going to be, he, he's going to make the food and not going to fight. So everybody else is kind of trying to learn how to fly and Rock's not really, or trying to suck in Stormlight, first of all. Let's start with square one. And Rock isn't really trying it himself until a little bit later in the chapter, but he's kind of just observing and watching everybody and having a couple conversations. So what were your guys' thoughts on our first Rock point of view chapter? I thought it was a really cool chapter. I actually really enjoyed getting Rock's view on some of this. He's been in a really interesting character. He's one of, one of my favorites, really, from from bridge four. So to, to get to see his view of the world was, was pretty cool. Uh, honestly, I kind of felt like rock is, it seems like rock is one of those people that just like everyone feels comfortable talking to them. You know, if you've ever met one of those people, you, you just, you start a conversation and before you know it, you're like sharing things you never really meant to share with anyone else. He's just like that kind of person that's easy to talk to. And he doesn't even do anything. He just, you know, listens and kind of has pithy little sayings that he, spouts out but that seems to be rock like everyone just kind of comes to him and shares their their struggles and their moments and like that's just who he is definitely like i i think the biggest thing i learned or i i kind of knew this was the case but saw really fleshed out was rock's like deep reverence for spren um i feel like we got a lot of of his perspective on like how him and I assume his family and his people worship and just like are very, very reverent to Sprint. And I don't think we fully know why now, but it's just kind of like a, yeah, like the Sprint are just kind of like their gods, I guess. Um, and it's just very like a reverent thing for them. Um, yeah, it, it definitely, I don't know. I, I was a little, confused by this chapter but also like very grateful for it um i feel like we saw a lot about it a lot of stuff but i don't know if it answered more questions or gave more questions probably Typical. gave more questions Typical. um well it was an obvious question which it our characters actually ask halfway through this chapter somebody is conspicuously missing here did you guys pick this up uh paul do you know who it is heft is that who we're talking about? It is. Teft is missing. Any? Did you guys pick up on this? I just had thoughts about like, wow, we haven't seen Teft in a long time. I I had similar thoughts. I was wondering where where Teft was, and yeah, the characters are asking, but some of the characters seem to know. Like Kaladin is asking, "Where's Teft?" And then Rock mentions something like, "Oh, he's just now noticing that Teft is gone." Like it. Almost like everyone else knows where Teft is, but Kaladin doesn't. And I, it's either in the Sigsil chapter or this chapter where Sigsil thinks of it too, where, yeah. you know, Teft wasn't at the morning stew this morning. I hope it's this thing and not this other thing, you know? Like, the, there's certainly something going on that the Bridgemen know about. It's just the thing you don't talk about, you know? Like, no, we're not going to talk about it. And my only guess on this is in my... In my headcanon for for Teft, like how I I see him, I'm 
I have an understanding, and I honestly do not recall what this is based on, that there's a possibility that Teft has a gambling problem. There was some mention somewhere about, like, Teft can't be trusted with money or something like that. Yes, I'm actually actually really proud of you for remembering that, too, because this is way back in the Way of Kings, where Kaladin gets strung up in the High Storm, and you get, like, a page of Teft point of view. He's taking care of Kaladin. Yeah. And he puts the spheres next to Kaladin as like, you know, what if he, you know, just a kind of a stone, like a Hail Mary play of, you know, what if he could use this? And uh, he does. But he has an offhand comment of, man, I really don't like having spheres. I can't be trusted with them. So that's where you're getting that from. I think I'm completely extrapolating that or I'm using that to jump to gambling. Like that's kind of the one thing I can tie to that to say, okay, he's not to be trusted with money. Maybe he has a gambling problem. So that that's kind of my only thought, my only guess as to maybe what's happening here is Teft is now relapsed into a gambling addiction. I feel like I'm kind of out on a limb, but that's my only thought. And it's something that at least Sigsil and Rock know about to a point. Like, I don't know if they're they know everything, but you know that they've been they've certainly have had a conversation together of you know where's Teft? He's not here. Like we need we need to know where he is. I've, for I've the... been wondering about Teft for a while now. And I'm I'm under the assumption at this point, especially now that it's being alluded to, that it is something bigger. I don't think it's going to be like, oh, he went gambling or something, unless that ended up playing into something big. But I think he's going to end up in a lot of trouble or even some like bad character development that we should be worried about. Um, so I'm very curious to see what happens with him. Maybe so- he'll get kidnapped by an unmade or something and they'll have to go save him. Wow. Mm-hmm. Something there's an interesting dynamic here between. Do you think? Okay, let's say Teft did have a gambling addiction. Let's go down this trail for a second. Do you think Kaladin would punish him? Is Kaladin going to like within a military structure going to have like a punishment, and is he going to enforce that type of thing? If so, it would be on the context of like you haven't been at whatever training we needed to do or things like that. Not like a, you can't gamble kind of thing. Like if he was missing out on responsibilities because of it, which he is. Yes. Um, is. Then yeah. Then Kaladin would, I imagine. I, I agree with you, Paul, with what I think about Kaladin. I could see Kaladin being a, a stickler for responsibility of if you've made a commitment. You need to stand up to this. But yeah, at the same time, Kaladin's a very broken person. And so I think that he's very good at understanding that other people are broken too. And so I could also see him being fairly understanding in one sense, maybe. Yeah, just something to think about on the side there. So bridge four. Um, are trying to suck in spheres. Renarin is already there. He's a truth watcher. And so we can actually dive into Renarin here for a second. He kind of shows up to the scene here, Renarin, and he's talking to Rock and he's saying, well, 
I can't be in bridge four anymore because you guys are wind runners and I'm not a wind runner. And Rock's like, no, what, like, what, what, we're bridge four. It, I don't care what order you're in. You're still bridge four. Like, the, why would that matter? You're a, you were a light eyes before. It's not like you were like the same as the rest of us to start with. So what does that even mean though, to be a, like a, to be bridge four? You're still part of it. And I, I get what Rock is saying here. Bridge four has always been kind of a band of misfits, if you will. You know, everybody's there. Everybody contributes. Everybody kind of, you know, everybody's welcome. It's, it's a place of, of diversity for sure. It's a place where kind of anybody can come in and be a part. And Rock's example is the, uh, the Parchman guy, Relaine. Of you know, well, look at look at him, Renard. You might think you're the oddball. Well, we've got a we've got a parchment with us who is apparently the enemy that we're fighting. But kind of at the same t- side, on the flip side, I do kind of see Renard's point in that if they're all going to train as Windrunner squires, that kind of builds them up to fulfill a fairly specific role as Windrunners. I feel like it. I feel like in the the bigger picture of this, we're going to have ten different knights. 10 different orders of Knights Radiant, each order having their own kind of specific strengths and their own role that they perform. We've got, you know, the frontline warriors, we've got the protectors, we've got the healers, we've got the, you know, strategy, we've got the, you know, all, all those different kinds of things. And so for Renarin as a truth watcher to be kind of in the squad with the Windrunners, is that going to clash a bit? Is that going to be where he's sort of not doing what he's gifted towards or supposed to be doing as a truth watcher i could see that being the case so i'm a little confused too as to whether renarn should be training with them or not they they all speak the first ideal uh, under like command which is really weird which on the flip side actually ends up summoning spren to be like interested in them which towards the end of this chapter you you see them but they all they all are told the words they don't know them um like on their own like dalinar and kaladin and shallan apparently we haven't seen shallan speak the first ideal but apparently she did at one point and but they're all told what the first word the first words are they all say them and then some some spren show up and they're kind of interested and still has an interesting relationship with them but uh do you guys have any questions about like the words and how that the rules work there like i was always i always thought like you know given the old knights radiant you know you don't you don't tell each other the words you have to figure them out for yourself that type of thing but here they're just like all right here are the words you say them and we'll see what happens you know like yeah, it's a bit interesting because I don't understand if the signif- if like the power lies in the words themselves or if it's like the words with your spren, right, or with that bond. Because um, I'm I'm under the assumption that it's like the spren is what makes everything work, um, and I guess it's saying the words is almost like a command or a. A notable thing with the spren that you're with, not like, uh, like simply saying these words are going to grant you powers. But I don't know. 
Yeah, I'm a little confused by the the order of operations. Is it you say the first ideal and then you can get a spren and then we'll we'll see if you pass on or is it you get chosen by a spren then you say the first ideal then you maybe say more ideal how do the squires fit into this do they get spren do they not get spren i'm not sure cuz sil was attracted to kaladin before he knew the words right right uh, but these spren don't show up until the squires say the first ideal so there's there's which came first the the chicken or the spren you know Chicken or the chicken spren? Yes. <laughs> and how do the how do the squires fit into this too? Are they going to get the full powers of a knight radiant windrunner? Are they going to be able to fly? Are they going to be able to stick to stuff? Is that? I guess if that's going to be true, what's the difference? What what differentiates a full knight radiant with a squire? And it seems like the immediate answer would be. Their spren. It seems like Kaladin has Sill. Well, the rest of his squires that have been breathing, some of them have been breathing Stormlight for a little while, at least like Lopin and maybe Sigzil and a few other, they don't appear to have spren. So is that the difference, maybe? I'm not sure. And Trevor's apparently not going to help me out either. Nope. He, sh he should. He should just let us know, I think, nope. at this point. I think we did a good job. I think we deserve <laughs> I deserve this. Let me know. I deserve yeah. this. Yeah. That, that is interesting. And, and I think that's part of why, at least right now, I'm honestly not a big fan of Squires. It's kind of neat, but it also, like, from my perspective, defeats a little bit of the purpose of the journey we've had with Kaladin. It's like, okay, now that he's done it, they just kind of all do it. Um... Which is just kind of odd, but there is a I. While I agree with you, Paul, um, especially from a first-time reader's perspective, it's this idea of we've mentioned this before, but the idea of squires is kind of like a, a a gimmick, you know. Like now we need a lot more knights radiant, so we're just gonna get a bunch of knights radiant for free. Um, but there is limitations where when Kaladin was gone with the the Parshmen, none of them could do their powers, so there's. There's some trade off there, but yeah. Just another note as we're going forward, Hobber, do you guys remember who Hobber is? He's the one of the bodyguards who was protecting Elokar when Zeth attacked. Um he got his legs paralyzed by a shard blade or dead, or whatever you want to call it, from a shard blade, and he heals himself in this uh in this chapter and he has an interest he has a really cool scene with lopin lopin gives him the double hand bridge four salute um, because he has a second arm back and then hover returns it and it's like a really cool like really cool moment between the two of them that they've both been healed so it is i thought that was pretty cool to see hover healed um i guess my question with that is Is he going to start to have a more significant part? I, I've kind of understood Hobber as, like, not as notable, and he was just the bodyguard that got hurt because someone needed to get hurt in that situation to add, like, a story impact, I guess. Right. Um, of, like, wow, this guy lost his legs, you know? Like, that's really sad. Um, 
but yeah, but I, I'd like to see Humber be more relevant or a bigger thing now. Um, I don't, I don't foresee there being like any great story development due to Humber, but it, it is cool to see like that, res- like his body restored with the stormlight and everything. Kaladin's reaction to it was interesting, and it kind of ties back to what he and Rock talk about earlier in the chapter. Kaladin's all excited that they're all getting these powers, and he because he says, "Now I don't have to worry about them dying in battle. They're all they're all safe. They're all protected. They're finally protected. They have powers." And I think Rock even says at some point, he's like, "No one is fully safe ever," or something like that. I I butchered that, but kind of to that effect. So there's there's kind of this question of Kaladin is fighting so hard to protect his men, but it, I feel like that's a, a losing battle. That that's that's a battle that's never ending. Right. Trying to protect and his his men, you'll eventually lose, right? Because nobody lives forever. So exactly. And so Rock, I feel like, is kind of pointing out that you know, hey man, you can't protect everyone all the time. And Kaladin, in typical Kaladin fashion, is like, gosh darn it, I'm gonna. This is an excellent step in protecting them all. They all now have powers. But, yeah, interesting continuation of that struggle for Kaladin. And there's an interesting swap of roles there, because traditionally, Rock has been the, you know, the optimistic one of like, you know, everything's gonna be, everything's gonna be fine. Here, come have some soup. It'll be, it'll be great. And Kaladin's like, no, my life is terrible. It'll always be terrible. And at this point, Kaladin's like, we're we're finally we're finally getting somewhere. I'm I'm they have powers. They're protected. And Rock Rock's the pragmatist here. It's like, well, are they though? Like, we're about to go into a war, and the enemy has powers we're assuming to be similar to us. So you need to you need to have a great assault there. So So if we're ready to move on, we could probably mention Rock's family at least a little bit. That's what I wanted to bring up. Let's do it. So I actually really enjoy the scene because Rock, we've never really seen Rock as like a father figure, but he has a a family here and he has this really like, it's certainly emotional for him. It's not emotional for us because we don't really know his family at all, but he has us reuniting with his family and he's got what three four kids and his his wife is there and he his youngest daughter her name is beautiful song is is the is the interpretation there and she doesn't even recognize him because he's been so he's been gone so long she's four and he's been gone for pretty much her entire life so she recoils from him and it makes him you know it breaks his heart and I, I really like this scene because Rock is finally getting some of that payoff that Kaladin has been wanting for all of his men forever because he knows that some of his men are family men and, you know, they, they've sacrificed so much to, to be together and make it work. So he's finally getting some payoff for his men. I really liked this. I think this was my highlight of this entire episode. Um just because it was very like tender and special and and it was it was really cool to see especially for rock specifically i think um because 
rock well he it's funny because it, it goes against his like stereotype because he's this huge big strong you know horn eater or whatever that they're super tough and stuff um but it's just like kind of an, an emotional scene um and rock is seems to be kind of an emotional guy which is which is cool and fun um but yeah honestly i had almost forgotten that you know he was sent to the bridge cruise and all that stuff and just how much stuff has happened and how long he's been away from his family and him and his family have probably just been worried sick this whole time and it's just really cool to see that them reunite and them finally like get together and, and i really loved it a lot I liked it too. It was also kind of unexpected for me. This, this, I feel like the family we've been waiting for to arrive is actually Shalon's family. I've been kind of waiting for you know the day they're going to arrive, and here we get Rock's family kind of showing up out of nowhere to join him. And it was a really cool and and powerful scene there, but also kind of unexpected, which was which was fun. So I said in our previous episode about which we only covered one chapter from part two in our previous episode, one actual chapter, not counting the interludes. Um, and I was saying I was worried about a lot of our content being like almost filler while we wait for the next Sander Lynch. Um, but I really really liked this and i think it was like really good and i think specifically this part with rock was very like exciting in, in like really big scale and just like a really great thing i also think of it in like a movie context of like i feel like this would be kind of maybe not fully a tearjerker because like we don't know his family and we haven't seen his family really before but it's it's an emotional moment and it's really cool to see um and i really like that Yeah, this would be like the climax of an episode. Like if we're going to have, you know, a 20 episode season or something, it's not a finale. It's not a, it's not even a mid-season finale, but it's at least kind of the the climax of a chunk of this story. Yeah, it, it did feel like a, a meaningful moment. And then they cop off the chapter with bridge four carrying their bridge, like, you know, one last time as, as rock says, like we're now wind runners. We're going to fly and, I'm going to carry this bridge one last time. Oh, can I read that real yeah, quick? Go for it. I thought that was awesome. This is like the last two sentences of, of chapter 37. Paladin took his place at the front together. They carried the bridge on one final run reverently as if it were the beer of a King t being taken to his tomb for his eternal rest. For some reason, I thought that was like, wow, w what an interesting little moment there. We've spent, as you mentioned, Trevor, all of Way of Kings, like in the mud with Bridge Four, feeling all their pain, feeling the adversity that they have to overcome. We kind of took a break from that in Words of Radiance, but here in this little end of the chapter in Oathbringer, I feel like we've kind of closed, we've closed a chapter on our Bridge Four team. They're no longer Bridgman. They're probably still going to call themselves Bridgman and Bridge Four, I bet, because that's kind of their thing. But here they are carrying their bridge for one last time because they're so far, they've come so far from that. Not only are they no longer slaves, they're not just soldiers. They're squires of the Order of 
Windrunners in the Knights Radiant. Like, how cool is that? And to kind of close the chapter with with that little, you know, symbolic moment was, I thought, really cool. One other thing I want to say that I just realized from you reading that, and I, th- I think what you said was incredible, Elliot. Uh, I agree. Like, the development has been just super awesome. But I, I want to point out the, like, the difference in Kaladin's significance at the front. Um, it says Kaladin takes his place at the front, and it sounds very triumphant. Um, but how that was before was being at the front was a death sentence. Right. That was, you aren't going to die. Like, that's the worst place to be. Um, and I think it was really cool to see that. And now it's kind of like a a triumphant place with like Kaladin as the head of the group and, and that's really really neat to see and if you remember back in the way of kings the first time Kaladin is set as bridge leader who does he take the place of at front when everybody or when he's taking that that spot for the first time do you remember is it, is it rock it is rock he takes rock's place at the front of the bridge crew that first time and says I'm bridge leader. I'm taking this front spot. And Rock says, all right, if you want to get killed, go for it. And so that's the, from that first run where Kaladin's bridge leader to this last one where Kaladin takes Rock's spot at the front is, is there. I, I did not think about it that way, Paul. That was brilliant. That just made it even more awesome in my mind. It's really good. I didn't I didn't think of that until you just read it again there. Um, but I think that's some really cool significance to point out. Um, I agree. Totally agree. Any more closing thoughts for episode 65? My, my only thought left is just like not so much about our story, but I think it's kind of funny because we're getting a lot more Bridge 4 content, or at least we did this week. And we're really having to dig deep because all of our connections are like back in the way of kings. Because um, there wasn't that much in, in uh, Words of Radiance for Bridge 4 that much, you know? Um, and, and I think it's kind of funny. And I'm, so I feel like I'm coming to conclusions slower with with that. But it's, it's great. I, I really enjoyed it. But that was my only thought. It is really hard because, yeah, that stuff is 2,000 plus pages ago. Like, trying to remember back that far and make those connections is really difficult maybe maybe a minor downside of having a a series that's so long and so deep you know we we enjoy that depth we love the fact that the story is so big but a little difficult sometimes to tie it all the way back to those hundreds and hundreds of pages ago good stuff though anything else nada Cool. Thank you for joining me, Paul and Elliot. We've got some. We had some cool Bridge Four content that I was really happy to to share with you guys for this episode. So thanks for joining me for that. Let's read more and talk next week. Thanks for thanks for coming. Later's. Hasta luego.